Well, I'm excited about this new series that we're starting today as we're going to spend the next six weeks leading up to the greatest celebration that we have in our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for the next six weeks, we're going to be unpacking this subject that Jesus spoke more about than almost anything else. Because whenever Jesus talked about what he came to do, whenever he talked about the good news of what he wanted to accomplish in the world, he used this word, he used the word kingdom. And over and over again, he told us stories about what the kingdom of God is like. In the New Testament alone, the words kingdom or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven were used over 150 times. Now, Jesus' invitation to participate in this new kingdom reality that he brought to earth was something that offended the religious leaders of the time and confused the politicians of that day. In fact, to his listeners, much of what Jesus said felt subversive, explosive, and earth-shaking. And yet today, even though this gospel, this good news, and the power behind it, even though it hasn't changed Sometimes it feels like in our own lives that it's kind of gotten lost in the midst of everything else that is going on. It's become a message, it's kind of become a nice thing instead of the message, instead of the thing. And I think we've lost sight of this kingdom reality in our lives. See, Jesus came, as we just sang about in that song, Jesus came to bring God's kingdom, to bring the kingdom of heaven to us. And that was, and that still is, a big honking deal. It was radical. And when we truly understand what Jesus came to do and what he accomplished through his death and resurrection, when we truly understand the reality of what it looks like to embrace and seek God's kingdom, it will lead to radical change in our lives. I mean, if if we don't grasp what he came to do, if we don't grasp the power with which he gives us to live, it's like we're settling for walking around in a dark room with only a four-watt nightlight lighting it up, when all along, right beside us, there's a hundred-watt lamp. All we have to do is plug it in. You know, Pastor Sean is preaching today over at Good Hope Road, and as we were preparing this message, I said to him, like, how do we get people to be expectant for what God wants to teach them in this series. Because this topic of kind of the kingdom of God, it feels a little bit more uh, mysterious um, than some of our last few series. I mean, we've gone through some incredibly relevant series in the past few months. We, We talked about anxiety and depression back in December, and we talked about what is it that will actually make us happy in the month of January, and then we just finished this powerful series on forgiveness. And so how do we set up this series so that we can understand why understanding God's kingdom is so important? And here's where we landed. We landed with three questions that were incredibly relatable to me. The first one is, do you ever struggle with feelings of mediocrity in your life? Number two, do you ever feel like your faith is just kind of ho-hum? And number three, do you ever feel like there's got to be more to a relationship with God than you are experiencing? And for me, the answer to all three of those questions is yes. (laughs) And any of you that answered yes to any of those questions, if you're like me, it's likely that we aren't living out the full potential of the kingdom reality that Jesus is inviting us to live out. It's likely that we are not fully surrendered to and that we have not been fully transformed by the arrival 
of the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever had any of those kind of aha moments where you get a glimpse into the kingdom of God, where God kind of invited you to explore it maybe a little bit more actively or with a little bit more fervor than you had before. Nine years ago this month, um, which is hard for me to believe, it was before my oldest son was born, um, I was on a daybreak short-term trip to the country of Mali in West Africa. And like most short-term trips, um, it was a faith-stretching and broadening experience. I actually have a picture from uh, our trip there. But um, you know, this was a trip for us where, where we were, there was a lot of kind of in-country travel happening. We were visiting a lot of different people. We visited reformed prostitutes at a, at a trade school of sorts as they learned how to sew and, and do other things so that they could make money in different ways. We visited uh, Jesus followers in villages where they were literally the only ones who knew and proclaimed the name of Jesus in their whole town. We visited prisoners who were living in these incredibly destitute circumstances. We visited a hospital where people had to walk for days to get there to be treated. And at every single one of these places and more, I remember being challenged to pray prayers of faith that were way outside of my comfort range. And if I'm honest, way outside my belief of what the power of God could really do. We prayed over wells that had been dry for years to spring up with water. And we prayed for hearts that were as hard as stone to be softened by God. And we prayed for things that to me seemed nearly impossible. And I was convicted on that trip that my faith was too small, that I had made God's kingdom only as big and only as powerful as my minuscule faith, and yet others seem to have access to this belief that God's power could literally do any of these supernatural, miraculous things. And so I had to ask myself, why doesn't my life and my faith look like that? How do I need to adjust my view of what God's kingdom and what God's power are all about? And I ask that question to all of us today. Have we lost the picture of what the kingdom of God is all about? Where is our expectation of God's miraculous work in our lives? Where's our acknowledgement that we serve a ridiculously mighty and powerful God? And so that is what this series is going to be about. And I don't know about you, but picturing what my life, picturing what our lives, picturing what the lives of people in our community, picturing what our lives could be if we truly understood and embraced and sought first and surrendered to the work of the kingdom of God, it's this picture of exponential healing and transformation and renewal. And so I am excited to see what God is going to do as we come to a fuller understanding and live out the power that God gave us with which to live in his kingdom. And so that is why we're doing this series. And so I want to start the process of unpacking all of this today, kind of setting the table for where I think God wants to take us in a familiar passage. And I say it's familiar because it's a passage that we've returned to multiple times in the last few months. It's Matthew chapter 6. And as a reminder, Matthew 6 is found right in the middle of Jesus' first sermon, and that first sermon is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as Rick said a few weeks ago, it's called that because he was preaching a sermon and he was standing on a mountain, so they called it the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine that. If you remember, Jesus said this in verse 9. He said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept 
holy. Some translations say, hallowed be thy name. But then he said, pray like this. He said, may your kingdom come. Pray, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, many of you recognize these verses. They're uh, just a small piece of the Lord's Prayer, this kind of sliver, this part of this sermon, where Jesus gives this this model for how to approach God very personally and, and very privately. And in verse 10, then, we see that Jesus asks his followers, he encourages his followers to pray, may your kingdom come. Now, do you ever wonder, do you ever, like, try to put yourself in the place of the original hearers of the things that Jesus said and just wondered, like, what did they think when they heard that? Or what did they think when they prayed that? Like, what did they actually mean when they prayed those words? You know, like us, first century people, uh, when someone talked about uh, the kingdom or a kingdom, they pictured a specific place with a specific person who was ruling as king. And so in that day, Rome was this powerful example of what a kingdom was. And before Rome, it was Greece, and before that, Persia, and Babylon, and all of these places had kings who were ruling, who were kind of a big deal. Kings that maybe weren't super concerned about the little guy or the normal, everyday person. And so Jesus's people were waiting for a king that would take up the cause of the little guys. In fact, they hoped that maybe Jesus would be this king. But when they prayed these words, God, may your kingdom come, what they most likely thought was, God, I'm looking forward to your rule. I'm looking forward to that time down the road in the future when you will work in powerful ways. I wish that day was here now, but I'll just keep waiting for it to come. I'll ask you to bring it soon. And maybe you think of God in that way as someone who's kind of waiting to do his primary work until some magical day in the future. When you think of the kingdom of God, perhaps you think of it as a future destination, like heaven. And you view now as just kind of this meaningless waiting room. Now don't get me wrong, heaven is going to be amazing, but check this out. Jesus was telling those people, and he's trying to get us to understand as well, that the kingdom is not just a future experience. After all, he tells us to pray, God, may your will, may the work of your kingdom be done here on earth as it is, just like it is in heaven. See, before Jesus preached that first sermon, when he first stepped out into the public eye and began his public ministry, he said this in Matthew 4:17. He said, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. He says, listen, God is giving you an opportunity to become aware of something incredible that is about to happen, but you've got to clear your path for it or you're going to miss it. The Greek words used for near, the kingdom of heaven is near. The Greek word used for near mean at hand, within grasp, or even right here. Jesus was essentially saying, now is the time. The kingdom of God is here. It's not just a future dream. It's not just a future place. It's here. And so cast sin aside. Get yourself right with God because I'm about to do something new. See, Jesus' arrival was the turning point of history because it signaled the king and the kingdom coming down to us. Jesus was making a statement with clarity that is one of our big ideas today. It's the first blank in your outline. It's that the kingdom of God is now 
It's not just later. The kingdom of God is now not just later. And so what did that mean? What did it mean to them? And what does that mean to us that the kingdom of God is here now? It meant that because of what Jesus was about to do and because he gave us his Holy Spirit after he did what he came to do, that the kingdom of God could be anywhere and everywhere among us. See, Old Testament people, they viewed the kingdom of God as something that was there in heaven, not here. Old Testament people had to relate to God from a distance by following his rules. Jesus said, no, God actually wants to have a personal relationship with you. Old Testament people had to constantly exert effort to make sure that they could stay in right standing with God. That when God looked down at them, that they, he, God didn't see their list of sins. And so to make sure that they paid the penalty through all, for all of their sins, they, they had to give all of these different types of offerings back to God. You read all about that in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, no, God sent me to be your offering. He sent me to pay your penalty. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth and along with it a totally radical and different way to encounter and interact with God. Jesus brought this kingdom power to us and by his spirit he can exert it through us. When the kingdom came to earth, when the kingdom came to us, the barrier between us and God because of our sin was removed. And because of what he did for us, when God looks at us, he no longer sees our list of sins. He no longer sees our list of shortcomings. He sees the work of his son. And that allows God to approach us, and that allows us to approach God in an entirely different way than people ever could before. He changed the game. See, the kingdom now, the kingdom of God here and now, it's a messy place where God's beauty collides with our brokenness. And it's not this, this death-causing collision. It's this life-renewing and life-restoring collision. Here's how I picture it. I picture us as teenagers coming home to our father after royally screwing something up. We made a terrible choice. We made a terrible mess. And we feel dirty, we feel broken, we feel totally unworthy. And what we expect is for our dad to tell us off, to give us our punishment, to tell us how embarrassed he is of us, and then to banish us to our rooms, right? Because he can't even stand to be around us. Maybe you had a father like that, maybe that was your experience. And if it was, I'm guessing that for many of us, that's how we believe that God views us. That's how we believe God feels about us and how God treats us. That because of what we've done, because of the mess that we've made, there's no way that God would even want to give us the time of day, much less express love to us or embrace us. But because of what Jesus did in coming, he came to show us that that's not how God the Father is. Picture instead coming home to your dad with those same expectations, but instead having your father run to you and embrace you, tell you that he loves you. Picture him grieving with you at the choices that you've made. Picture him wrapping his big loving hands around the back of your head and pulling you close to his chest. Picture him 
catching him, bottling up all of your tears. Picture him whispering in your ear, you are not a lost cause. You can be made whole again. You can be made new. See, the economy of God's kingdom, it operates on the currency of mercy and grace. And this is the relationship that Jesus came to give you with God the Father. This is what the loving rule of the kingdom looks like. Instead of condemnation for our brokenness, instead of our mistakes pushing God away, our mistakes, if we let them, can actually be opportunities for us to allow God to draw near. Jesus changed the game for how we relate to God. Instead of God saying, follow my rules, it became, no, follow me. Surrender to my loving rule in your life and see how it will make all the difference. Because when you do, armed with supernatural kingdom power, you'll be able to do things like forgive others of unspeakable sins. You'll be able to do things like love those who despise and persecute you. You'll be able to have agape, unconditional love for those in need. Those are not things that are <laughs> human inclinations. They are only things that God's kingdom power can do in your life. And so when Jesus came and invited people to make way for the kingdom of God in their lives, he did that through both instruction and action. It says in Matthew 4.23 that Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And it says, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. Jesus drew people into the kingdom because he was both the wise teacher and the miracle worker. He brought incredible depth of insight into our relationship with God, but he also cleansed the leper, and he healed the centurion's servant, and he calmed the storm, and he cast out demons. Jesus' role in our lives in this new kingdom is to be both the wise teacher and the miracle worker. Too often, though, I think we probably relegate Jesus to only one of these roles in our lives, whichever one feels most comfortable to us, right? We may get excited about Jesus, the miracle worker, bringing us healing for our diseases, but we resist the teacher who says hard things to us, things like, don't call your brother a fool, or things like, to lust is to commit adultery, things like, don't return evil for evil, forgive your offender, love your enemy. Or it might be the opposite. We might embrace Jesus as our ethical teacher, but resist getting involved with the supernatural Jesus who multiplies bread and fish and who raises people from the dead. But Matthew illustrates that Jesus' love and power are inseparable from his teaching, that we don't just experience the kingdom through the words of God, but also through the power and the presence of God. And I've shared this before, but the cool thing about being part of the kingdom of God, the thing that just blows my mind more than anything else, is that Jesus did all of these incredible things, and yet he tells us that we, broken, messy, oozing with sinful desires us, he tells us that we will do even greater things than those. <laughs> How could we do that? Only because the power of the kingdom at God is at work within us. And there is evidence of this everywhere. Like those three women in the video last week who forgave the shooter who killed their family members. 
But there's not just evidence of the power of the kingdom at work in other places. There's evidence of kingdom power at work in this church family as well. When a group of guys chooses to go to a diner every week for breakfast where the food really isn't that good, but where there's a waitress who they feel called to pray for and minister to and bless so that she can discover Jesus' love for her, kingdom power is at work. When a small group chooses to bless a young, unwed, first-time mother they don't even know with some appliances that she didn't own, and then on top of that, take an interest in being present in her life so that she can see the joy that being in a relationship with Jesus can bring kingdom powers at work. When a child whose illnesses had doctors stumped and unable to treat him, is prayed for and anointed by members of the Daybreak family who love him, who love his parents, who love God, and who genuinely have faith that God could heal him, and God does, kingdom power is at work. Shoot, when 20-some of you commit to spending the night with over 100 elementary school students, many of whom don't attend Daybreak but were invited by their friends, that is kingdom power at work. All throughout our church family, people are doing radical things. They're loving sacrificially. They're exchanging their comfort to help others experience God's comfort. God's kingdom here is alive and active. It's not just surviving, it is thriving. And in this world full of brokenness, can you imagine the difference that we could make if we could all connect our lives and our purposes to God's kingdom purposes. When we adopt God's desires as our own, when we begin to long for God's best for all people in our lives, the potential for change, the potential for healing, the potential for restoration is limitless. And I think that's why Jesus coaches us this way a little bit later in that Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 33, he says, seek the kingdom of God, underline this next phrase, above all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Because the kingdom of God is now, not just later, because the kingdom is here, Jesus didn't just say, hey, listen to my rules, follow the rules, be good, and then wait for heaven to arrive, and then you'll get to experience the kingdom. No, he said, actively seek the kingdom of heaven. And his seek word here means to aim for the kingdom, to aim for what God wants. Maybe you remember back in that happiness series, one of the words that stuck with me was that trajectory word. And, and this is the same concept, it's here again. Jesus is essentially saying that when we set our trajectory towards the kingdom of God over time, when we choose to surrender our ways for God's ways, when we choose to aim at right living, that then the miracle of that is that even in surrender, even through giving up control, God will give us what we need. Now notice the word choice there. He says he will give us what we need, not what we want, <laughs> but what we need. Because in a way that you and I will never be able to do, God is able to peer into our hearts and our souls and bring about what we need. And here's a secret that might seem a little counterintuitive. <laughs> Have you ever thought that we might need struggle? That we might need brokenness? 
that for our own souls, we might need need. And that even in those things, we can be able to experience that God is squarely in control. You know, I've recently discovered and finally starting to embrace that the biggest catalyst in my life, the thing that has grown me more than anything else, especially over the last several years, it's, it's not knowing the right things, it's not getting to know more about God, it's not being able to live in the comfort of secure circumstances. No, the greatest catalyst for me that has helped me take steps forward in my life and in my faith has come in being broken. See, God knows better than us. He knows when we need struggle and when we need triumph. He knows when we need defeat and he knows when we need victory. And he knows that without one, that we don't and that we won't appreciate the other. And so he says, seek me first. Live under my love. Aim your life towards engaging with the king and his kingdom work and allowing my supernatural power to flow in and through you. Don't miss it. Don't just say you believe in what Jesus did and then wait to die until you experience the power of the kingdom. Fully live, fully experience God's kingdom while you're alive. Because God's kingdom isn't something we are waiting on, it's something we're aiming at. God's kingdom isn't something that we're waiting on, it's something that we're aiming at. And so let me ask you a question. Is God's kingdom your aim? If you look at your life, if you think back, for instance, over the past week, if you look at where your time and where your energy has been diverted, has it been to live under God's leadership and to help carry out God's will here on earth? And I'm going to guess, if you're anything like me, that you might be honest enough to admit that you've been a little distracted, that you could say, yeah, I've, I've sought God, but that above all else part, Probably not. Maybe if you're honest, too often you would say that you, you fit God into your life. But here's the thing. The kingdom of God will never fit into your life. It's too massive. It's too incredible. It's too breathtaking. It's too all-consuming. And so if you're just fitting God into your life, I have bad news. Because what you're actually fitting into your life is not God is not the kingdom of God that Jesus came to offer us. It is a cheapened version of God. And I'm not saying any of this this morning to make you or to make myself feel guilty, but to help us realize in the context of this conversation how much we are missing out on. Because when God's kingdom, when staying connected to God, when being sent out to bring God's best to others is our aim, it truly is radical. And with radical living for God comes radical power from God. And so this Lenten season, I want you to think about what is it that's preventing you from focusing your aim on God's kingdom? What is it that's distracting you? What's got your attention? What can't you stop thinking about? Is it money? Is it either your lack of it or your desire for more of it? Is it a relationship? Is it a person you just can't stop thinking about? Is it your job? Is it your desire to, to be successful and to manage your image? Is it your busy schedule? Is it the release of Captain Marvel? <laughs> is it bacon? I mean, what is it? What is it that has your aim 
just, a, that's for maybe for me sometimes. What is it that has your aim just a little bit off? You know, your distraction might even be a good thing. It might not be a bad thing. It could be a very good thing that has just gotten a little bit out of order in the priority list of your life. What is it that you're distracted by? Did you know that once when Jesus was a boy, that Mary and Joseph accidentally left him behind in a different city? Now, to be fair, Jesus was kind of sneaky. He, he jumped ship, so to speak, and he stayed back in the temple as about a 12-year-old because he wanted to debate with the elders about the things of God. He was hungry to talk about the things of God. But Mary and Joseph thought he was further back in the caravan with some of his extended family. But check out what Luke 2.43 says about Joseph and Mary in this story because I think it's really relatable to our lives as well. It says, after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents, underline this next phrase, and his parents didn't miss him at first. His parents didn't miss him at first. Now, Mary and Joseph weren't unloving. They weren't uncaring. They weren't misintentioned. They were just distracted. Distracted so much that they didn't even miss him at first. They didn't even realize that he wasn't there. And maybe you feel that way today as well. Maybe Jesus has been missing in your life for a little while, and at first, you didn't really miss him much. In fact, you didn't even realize that you had left him behind. You didn't realize that you weren't living in his presence. Maybe you just kind of forgot to spend time with him by reading his word. Maybe you've just felt like you're too busy to stop and slow down and spend time with him in prayer. Maybe experiencing him in corporate worship has taken a backseat to other Sunday morning distractions, and at first, you didn't even miss Jesus. But now, like I imagine Mary and Joseph having that moment of panic, now you're kind of having that moment too where you realize, oh no, <laughs> I've lost him, but I love him. I lost him, but I need him in my life. Will I ever be able to find him again? And if that's where you are, I want to remind you this morning of what God's word says. Multiple times in God's word, it says, when you seek him with all of your heart, you will find him. And so what if in this 40 days of Lent, you decided to pursue Jesus again? What if you sought him with all of your heart? What if you aimed your life at being loved by and taught by and embraced by and healed by Jesus? What if you decided in the way that you lived your life to be radical once again by seeking God's kingdom first and by doing the kind of crazy countercultural stuff that Jesus taught and that Jesus did? And if that's your desire today and in this season, a very practical way that you can help to readjust your aim is to do what Pastor Rick talked about earlier, and that's to choose to fast the thing that has most been distracting you. Now, maybe you're new to fasting. Maybe that's not a practice that you've done before, and you're kind of wondering, like, what is this whole fasting thing about? <laughs> Why would I ever want to fast? Well, that's where my head was at for a number of years when I didn't understand it, and my first thought was always like, I like food way too much to fast, so no thank you. <laughs> Listen, you don't have to choose to fast food, and many of you probably should not choose to fast food. Fasting is really just meant to help you focus, 
Fasting, get of re- getting rid of a specific distraction in your life, gives you the freedom to focus more on God and less on that thing. Now, several of you have done the fasting thing. Maybe you've done it for a long time. And this year, as you begin to think about and pray about what you want to fast, I want to encourage you to not fast something that you think will make you look good. Because fasting isn't about being trendy. Fasting is about being honest. It's about being honest with God. It's about being honest with ourselves about what it is that is drawing our energy and our attention and our affection away from God. And so what if, instead of fasting something only because it's popular to fast that thing, what if instead we legitimately sat with God this morning and asked him to reveal to us what it is that has taken temporary first place in our lives right now, what it is that is most distracting us from radically seeking Jesus and his kingdom? And what if we choose to fast that thing instead for the next six weeks? So let's think about that. Let's be real with ourselves. Maybe you need to fast comparing yourself to others. Maybe that means you need to get off of social media for a while. What if you fasted getting your way? Maybe that means you need to discipline yourself to enter into conversations with humility and discipline yourselves to not give the last word. What if you fasted alcohol? What if you fasted pornography? What if you fasted pleasing others and proving yourself by overworking? These are some of the very real things that serve as distractions to us fixing our gaze on God and his kingdom. What is it for you? What do you need to fast? I want to invite you for the next minute or so to just sit with your eyes closed and sit in silent prayer with God and ask him to begin to turn over some rocks in your soul and to point out what that thing is that is most distracting you from spending time, from seeking first God's kingdom. And then I want to pray for you that you would have the courage to name that distraction and to kick it off the throne of your lives. So would you close your eyes with me? Ask God to reveal to you what it is, what that number one distraction in your life is in this moment of silence. Maybe you want to pray this prayer in your heart this morning as I pray it out loud. God, forgive me for how I've been distracted. I've let other things, I've let even good things distract me from living life in your presence. But today and throughout this Lenten season, for the next 40 days, I want to put a stake in the ground. I put you 
back on the throne of my life. Your kingdom has come, God. Let it come in me. Your kingdom is within my grasp. Let me take hold of it. You are bringing heaven to earth. God, bring heaven into my heart. I take a need, Jesus, to your loving rule. I invite you to take charge of my life and to fully transform it. God, may I seek you, may I seek your kingdom, your loving best for all people. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus, the one who did what he did to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth that we pray. Amen. So a few minutes ago, I gave you the opportunity to begin to think about what it is that you're going to fast this season, and I want to invite you to keep processing that. And if you have been honest enough with yourself to be able to identify it, I want to encourage you to write that thing down on your response card, to name it so that the members of our prayer team can pray over you and can join you in your prayers and your desire to put that thing back into its rightful place in your life. And members of our prayer team are available even now back in the prayer room if you would like them to pray over you in this moment. But I also want to give you an opportunity to take a symbolic action step that indicates to God your legitimate desire to seek Him and His kingdom first. Over the course of the next two songs, some of the elders and deaconesses from our ministry board are here in the front of the room, and they're here to apply ashes on your forehead and to speak a word of blessing over you if that's something that you feel compelled to do. As Pastor Rick said, many churches do this kind of ceremony on Ash Wednesday, but we're a little non-traditional, we're a little weird, so we're doing it on Ash Sunday instead. But if you choose to come forward, this is what will happen. They will apply the ash to your forehead in the form of a cross, and that cross just serves as an outward sign of an inward desire for you to acknowledge that life is short and that you want to live every day to the fullest by understanding and embracing the kingdom of God and the work of God in your life. Now, for some of you, this might seem like a little bit of a stretch, and if that's the case, that's okay. Because I don't want you to do it just because I tell you to do it. I don't want you to do it because you look around and you see others doing it. I don't want you to feel pressured at all to do it. If you do it, I want you to do it because you feel like God is telling you to do it. I want you to do it because you feel compelled in this moment to have a desire to live a radical life for God where your actions and expectations are aligned with God's desires for the kingdom. You've got two songs, and so there is no rush at all in this moment of response. So I want to invite you to spend some time, continue to pray if you need to, continue to wrestle with God about how he's calling you to respond to him today and in this season. Is he calling you to fast? If so, name that distraction and make that decision to fast. Is he calling you to put a stake in the ground through participating in this ash ceremony today? If so, come forward during the next two songs. Is he calling you to take those reflection and discussion questions at the end of your sermon outline this week and to really dig into those, either in your personal time or with your small group? If so, commit to doing that. Take the time that you need, process your response, and then feel free to come forward to receive the ashes if that's how God leads you and challenges you to respond at any point during the next two songs.